0: The dominant theme in today's text is that of orderly worship. How God expects us to conduct congregational worship. And the primary emphasis is that the church's worship should be orderly and not chaotic. Paul makes this abundantly clear for us in verse 40 as he concludes this section of scripture and so ties together verse 26 and verse 40 using the same phrase, Let all things be done. So I have a slide, this first one, which is our main point, and you can leave it there for a few moments. All things must be done for the building up of the church, and the way that that is to be done, the way that the church is to be built up is in an appropriate and orderly way. So if we're going to build up the church, how do we do that? Well, it's not through chaos, But it's through appropriateness and orderliness. And that's what Paul is driving at here in our passage today. This brings us then into our first main point, verses 27 through 28. Tongues required interpretation, and no more than two or three in sequence. Beginning reading at verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, let each of you, each of you has a psalm, each has a tongue, each has a revelation or teaching, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at the most, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. While I've titled the message Lady Preachers, there are, in fact, three things or three um, subjects that are instructed to keep silent in the church. The first, in this first point, point number one, verses 27 and 28, the speaking of tongues without interpretation is the first that is told to keep silent Last week, we asked for a show of hands. We're not going to do it today, but I asked for those who are visiting with us, how many of you came from charismatic churches or came from churches that spoke in tongues? Probably half the room raised their hands. And then I asked how many of you have spoken in tongues? Probably half the room raised their hands. And then I asked how many of you have faked speaking in tongues? And probably half the room raised their hands. The practice of tongues speaking today is completely out of line with this very clear teaching of Scripture. It is mass chaos in these types of churches. In the first century, in the apostolic era, during the foundation of the church, when Paul and the other apostles are going out and quite literally establishing the church, it was necessary to verify their credibility to establish their truthfulness, to establish their authority as apostles. And so there were these miraculous sign gifts which were given. Those sign gifts functioned as a sign which points to something else, and that something else they were pointing to was to verify their authority, to verify their credibility, and to establish their truthfulness. Imagine if you are... Uh, a Corinthian, you're living uh, around 50, 60, 70 AD. Uh, you don't have a printed copy of the Bible. You have lots of traditions and legends and um, spiritual uh, heritages and, and cultic teachings that you have um, grown up in. The Greek gods are, are your thing. And then some guy comes in and says, oh, hey, all those other gods are false. They're actually demonic. There is one true and living God. It's the God of the Bible. And I'm here to preach to you about him, in particular, his son, Jesus Christ, who is different from the other gods that supposedly had sons or sent great floods or any of these other legends or traditions. But in fact, this one is true. And so this visiting preacher comes to town, and he proclaims this message, and along with this message, he has certain power, and that power verifies what he's saying is true. In fact, his power is greater than the spiritual, mystical, uh, supernatural power that is being uh, displayed in the local temples. Something like that is what's going on with the Apostle Paul as he is traveling and preaching as a new visitor, as a guest in town going into these synagogues of Satan, as it were. On the issue of tongues, which we addressed at length last week, these were legitimate, real languages which were spoken in order to communicate the true gospel, so that those who did not understand the native languages could understand, hearing in their own language, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, came into the world, he was incarnate, he was flesh, he dwelt among us, and then he lived a sinless life, and he died as our substitute. He died taking our punishment. He died taking your punishment. He bore your guilt in order that you could be forgiven. And after he died, then he rose from the dead on the third day. He conquered sin and death. He was not defeated by sin, but he defeated sin. And so you, being a a local person, but not speaking, not understanding the Hebrew language... The gift of tongues enabled you to hear in your own language that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its call, its response, which is to repent and to believe the gospel. This gift of tongues was for the unbeliever, as we read in chapter 14 and as we established in last week's message. But even this corporate worship service was not to be... Um, It was not to be chaotic, it was to be structured, it was to be orderly, and so Paul says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most, three. Imagine if I was preaching, uh, some of you know I'm going to India on Thursday, I think, Um, so... I don't know what they're going to have me do while I'm in India. I'm going with Prashant from Rock Church, so I've, I'm sure there's something planned, but uh, we'll see when I get there. But let's say that they say, hey, we're going to go visit my uncle's orphanage, and we want you to preach in the chapel. And I say, cool, let's do it. And so imagine that instead of this being a church right here, this is an orphan orphanage chapel, and so there are there's probably 80 people here, so let's say there's 80 children here. And... I preach, a, I say a word, I say a line, and then Prashant translates. But imagine that there's multiple languages spoken among the people. So I say a line, and then Prashant translates, and then it, it, he translates into Telugu, and then his uncle translates into Hindi. So you've got two languages being translated into. Now imagine there was a third, or a fourth, or a fifth, Even this could become very chaotic. Even this attempt at orderliness could very quickly devolve into, I'm saying a line, and then 10 translators later, the the sermon is is going on and taking taking 10 hours to get through because it's a one-hour sermon with uh, 10 different languages. This would be chaotic. So Paul is saying, if someone speaks in a tongue, let there be uh, two or three at most. there must be an interpreter. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silent. Imagine that I, as a English-speaking only American, going to India and saying, I want to preach. And they're like, okay, but we don't have an interpreter for you. And then I stand up and I preach to that crowd. And they don't have a clue what I'm saying. What good did that accomplish? None. Zero. Zero. But what did it accomplish? Well, it provided a photo op for these very for this very famous practice of what well, they in missiology like white savior complex. Like these Americans go to these other places and like, "Hey, I'm here to dig a well for you as if they can't dig their own wells. I'm here to paint your orphanage as if they can't paint their own walls. I'm here to like you 12-year-old girls are great. Nothing against 12-year-old girls. But you send 12-year-old girls to go do jobs that they are not trained for, that the locals are trained for. You're taking away work from the locals. But what is this whole thing all about? Well, it's Christian tourism in the name of missions. Or as one textbook called it, seep trips. Not mission trips, but spiritual experiences in exotic places. (laughs) I'm quite passionate about missions, and I've studied this at length. And India is one of the places that I've always been like, Ooh, this is cool. But never felt the least bit gifted in because if you saw my language grades, you would say, yeah, this Greek, Hebrew, Spanish, whatever. Like, it's a struggle. So I need an interpreter. And if there is no interpreter, all that it is doing is providing an opportunity for pictures to post on social media to make myself look a certain kind of way, which is not the point. Because the point of that, what I just described to you, that is building up or puffing up the self. But what the scripture tells us is that all things are supposed to be done for the building up of the church. This is why interpretation of tongues is required. Because if you don't have it, all you're doing is inflating your own ego. Point number two. Prophecy was likewise limited to two to three prophets and required critical evaluation. Prophecy was likewise limited to two to three prophets and required critical evaluation. It says in verse 29 let two or three prophets and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. You can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. I'll come back and comment on verse 33 in a moment. So prophecy is likewise limited to two to three prophets and required critical evaluation. The point of church is not to be a circus. It's not to be uh, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. We got a three-ring act going on with like something exciting going on here with like four different shows within the show, and then there's this spectacle in the middle ring, and then another spectacle over here that each one has like so many things going on. That that's not the point of church. Under this term of prophecy, which I defined last week. Ex- explaining different types of prophecy, but arguing for what I view as the foretelling, telling the future. That's what I believe this word in this context is referring to, Uh, not proclaiming the word of the Lord, but proclaiming future events that have not yet happened. So let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others judge. They're not just supposed to, take the word for it. They're supposed to critically evaluate what is stated. Undoubtedly, along with everything in this text, it would have made much more sense to them than it makes to us. There's 2,000 years between us and them. There are massive cultural gaps between us and them. And a lot of the finer points of what is going on has long been lost. But nevertheless, what is clear is that Paul wants all things to be done decently and orderly because God is the author of peace, not confusion. And so, with this gift of prophecy, these prophets are limited to two or three, and they must be critically evaluated. Not with a spirit of being critical, but of honestly assessing what is stated. Making an evaluation is this legitimate? But then verse 30 is a curious line. It says, if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let, him, let the first be kept silent. So it seems that this gift of prophecy, which many in the church had, the, had they had that ability to tell the future, to make accurate prophecies, So let's say that there is someone who comes to the front. You've got a microphone down here and people are lining up and there's the two or three. They've prepared their prophecies, which they received during the week, and they're going to make them and they're going to to stand up at the front and talk about Anaisa's car and Giselle's train. But while they are preparing to make their speech, something is revealed in the moment, verse 30 to someone else. A prophecy is revealed to someone else in the audience. Verse 30 says, if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. So in other words, in football language, they have the ability to call an audible. There is the ability to change the play in the middle of the play, and someone from the crowd can actually say, wait a second, I just received a prophecy, and then the line of people, they can kind of like cut to the head of the line, and So be one of the two or three. Why is this? I'm not sure. Does our text say? No. Verse 31, though. For you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Encouraged. Again, it's this concept of being built up. Verse 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Again, it can be a confusing line at first reading, but what I believe this is referring to is this spiritual or supernatural gift of prophecy. Let's say that you have the gift of prophecy, and what is enabling this to happen is the spirit of prophecy which has been given to you. Let's say that you have that. If you do, in fact, have that, that gift or that spirit of prophecy is subject to you. What this means is you are not practicing some sort of chaotic, out of control, uh, ecstatic, uncontrollable prophesying. But rather, you have self-control. And so you're sitting there and you're like, I have something I could say, but I don't have to say it. I'm not being compelled with a force that is beyond what I am able to contain to stand up and blurt out in the middle of the church gathering the thing that I have to say. No, rather that spirit of prophecy is subject to the prophet. Again, this should cause you to think in terms of, the, of these wild and out-of-control charismatic services that maybe, I guess, half of you have been in and then the other half of us have only ever seen on YouTube, um, that that type of thing is completely out of bounds. Where the whole church is just going off and doing things all at the same time, and there's no order to it, there's no structure to it. It's sheer pandemonium. The illustration that uh, another preacher gave for this is um, like a um, field day at a um, sporting complex. So imagine you're at a school overlooking the athletic field and there's um, four or five kids here throwing a frisbee and then there's a handful of kids throwing a football and then there's some kids, there's a whole bunch of people by the soccer goals, they're all shooting goals and then... um, There's some people running around the track, like running, and then there's other people playing basketball on the track, and then there's some people trying to jump the hurdles on that same track, and then um, there's some shot put going on on the soccer field as well, and some discus being thrown on the soccer field, and you're watching this and you're just like, whoa, this is chaotic. There's a lot of different things happening. And as the illustration was told, then the coach comes out and blows his whistle, and all the chaos stops, and everybody puts down their extra equipment, and they all put on their soccer uniforms, and it turns out it was just the entire soccer team all messing around, but now they're falling in line and practicing soccer as they're supposed to. That's the type of thing that is happening here, where there is just this mass chaos, And Paul is trying to bring order and structure to say, no, there is a mission that is to be accomplished and it will not be accomplished if everyone is doing their own thing. So in that way, the coach blows the whistle and says, we're gonna actually start doing organized practice now. So verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. One of the challenges in Biblical interpretation and particularly these types of letters, letters like this, which we would call occasional letters, which Paul has written on certain occasions. He's written them for particular purposes or certain reasons. There's a certain thing happening, and so he's writing a letter to address it. The challenge is often to discern what is for all time versus what is just for this particular incident. And hopefully you've kind of picked up on the tone or the the subtle implications from my words here and there, that there's a lot of things in this that are just for the apostolic era. There are a lot of things described in this letter that don't continue. They're not continuing in our era today. But there are timeless principles which do abide. They do continue. They do go on for eternity, and they apply to all churches at all places at all times, not just the Corinthian church. And verse 33 is one of these principles that helps us, that helps us understand a timeless principle from a unique occasional situation. And that is that God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Now, if you are, raise your hand if you have an ESV. Okay. So I think there's probably more of you that also have ESVs that did not raise your hand because you weren't expecting me to ask for a show of hands. So a lot of you have ESVs in front of you. And the, the paragraph divisions or the structure of this is a little different between the ESV and the New King James, which I'm uh, working with right now. So the ESV, I believe, says something like this For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, period. New paragraph, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent for they're not not permitted to speak, or their women are as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silent in the churches, something along those lines, that type of structure uh, there is some scholarly debate about where the the period should go, where the first sentence should end in verse thirty three and the verse uh, thirty four should Go on. And part of the challenge is the repetition of the expression, the churches, as in all the churches of the saints. Let the women keep silent in the churches. Why is he saying the churches twice in one sentence? Seems a, a, a bit redundant. Now, uh, apparently, it is two different words that are being used for the churches. And so it could be translated something like, um, in the assemblies, let the women keep silent. As in all the churches, let the women keep silent in the assemblies or or something like that. But um, I'm not particularly worried about that. I'm not concerned about that distinction. But I'm just addressing it to acknowledge for the three of you who noticed that I see it and I'm aware. James, I see it and I'm aware. Um, I don't think it does anything to the main point. I don't think either way makes any bit of difference. Moving to point three. Point three. Women were also not exempt from regulations on their speech in the church. Women, women were not exempt from regulations on their speech in the church. If you're paying attention, you recognize that this whole thing has to do with speech in church. The tongues, the prophecy, and whatever this message is for the women, it's all about speaking in their speech. The scholarly consensus on this text, and if you have heard me preach for more than like, I don't know, a month or two, you know I'm not crazy about scholarly consensuses, but... We should acknowledge that the scholarly consensus on this text is that it is referring specifically to a particular scenario of judging the prophecies that were made. So point two, prophecies being limited to two to three prophets, then requiring critical evaluation. Is that the appropriate interpretation that this women keeping silent in the church is referring to keeping silent in terms of judging the prophecy. It's possible. The best and brightest minds argue for that. If this is the case, if this scholarly consensus is accurate, then it is not an absolute prohibition on all women speaking in any way inside the church gathering. You know, like we're here in this building, we're here at church, And there is maybe 55% female in this room. And so you 55%, just not allowed to talk. Just walk in, you might as well be wearing a mask and you're just not allowed to say a word. Hope you're okay with that. Like, is that really what Paul is arguing for? Is that what Paul is arguing for given what he's already said in chapter 11? When he's referring to the way in which the women are to pray or to prophesy? How are they going to do that if they're not allowed to talk? So I don't think that it, it, I and the scholarly consensus do not believe that this is an absolute prohibition on all women speaking in any way inside the church gathering or at, in the church building or wherever the church is taking place. Because chapter 11 gives parameters for women praying and prophesying, which seems to assume that it actually will be happening, and it's permissible, it's fine for it to be happening. Hence our modern application here at PBC in allowing or permitting women to read and pray scripture in the corporate gathering. There's a difference between the conversations that you have in this room and the actual speaking, the exercise of speaking gifts for the edification of all. The scenario that the scholars believe is at hand in Corinth is this issue of judging prophecy. In particular, the issue of married women judging, um, let's just make it singular, a a married woman judging her husband's prophecy in the corporate gathering. Because it says, you know, two to three prophets, one at a time, and you have to critically evaluate the prophecy. So let's just say brother Omar comes up to make a prophecy and then his wife, his dear wife, Luce, decides to criticize his prophecy. Imagine that a woman's husband made a prophecy and then that woman stood up and began criticizing him are critiquing him in front of the whole church. And then she starts saying, now wait a second, yesterday you told me that, so on and so forth. Now perhaps there are a few women in this room who would say, and? I don't see a problem with that. If that's you, I would like to introduce you to the ABCs of being a Christian wife. You have one command. You know, like in the Garden of Eden, there was one rule. Don't eat of the tree. Sure, that's more complicated than what I'm about to say, but as in essence, a Christian wife's instruction comes down to one command. Everything else is a derivative of that one command. You got one rule. Christian wives, one Rule, And that one rule is this, honor your husband. Simple as that, crystal clear, could not be clear, could not be simpler. Yes, there are other things in the Bible about Christian wives, but, but if you do this one thing, everything else will sort itself out as far as your side of the table goes. This is the most important thing that you need to do as a Christian wife, is to honor your husband. And it is the most harmful thing you could choose to not do. Nothing will destroy your marriage more quickly, more immediately, than dishonoring, shaming, degrading, criticizing, tearing down your husband, particularly in front of other people. So mocking your husband in front of others It might feel like a good way to express express pent-up contempt, but trust me, it's difficult to think of a more destructive thing you could do for your relationship. Biblical scholars believe that rather than challenging their husbands in public, Paul is calling the married women to ask their husbands questions about their prophetic visions at home. So your husband is making a prophecy and you're just like, oh boy, I didn't think that that's what he was going to say. Instead of standing up and bringing shame on him or shame on someone, some other husband in the church, that's also just as bad of a look. You bring shame on your husband when you are criticizing another husband in the church. So Paul is calling these married women to ask their husbands at home. Why? Why is this? Well, it's because there is a biblically defined order of headship from creation that is established in the fabric of humanity. This is referenced in our text. So we're in verse 34 and 35. Let the women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, for they are to be submissive, as the law also says. That reference to the law, nine times out of nine, it's a reference to the law of Moses. So this is a long-term policy that has been established from the beginning of time. Sorry, I tapped my screen and then it just like went to the wrong page. Um, So it's, it's described for us in the law of Moses in Genesis, which is referenced in verse 34. Now, perhaps you came to hear today something for or against lady preachers. And you're beginning to be concerned that perhaps you're going to leave this message disappointed because you're like, wait a second, if this is actually about evaluation of prophecy, it's actually not even about preaching, like can women preach in church or not? Well, fasten your seatbelts. 1 Timothy 2.12 is crystal clear and is not limited to a local scenario. And it also builds the argument from creation in the same type of way that this argument is built from creation. 1 Timothy 2.11 says, let a woman... let." Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So this text is clear. These books of the Bible, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are what we would call... Oh, I just had a brain freeze. I can't think of what we call them. Um... Pastoral epistles, thank you. These are these letters given to, to Timothy and Titus to instruct them on how the church is to function. And it is very clear in the text that these are timeless principles for how to establish all the churches. They're not local scenarios just for the church in Ephesus or just for the island of Crete. So, these are timeless principles, which is also why Paul is pointing back to creation. For Adam was formed for formed first, than Eve. Now, I believe that an additional case can be made beyond the explicit teaching of 1 Timothy 2. I believe that an additional case can also be made against lady preachers, which is, the argument is bound up in the definition and responsibility of preaching. I believe an additional case can be made from the very definition and responsibility of preaching because it is bound up in the task of preaching. And this task of preaching is something that only qualified men should be doing. These are men that we would call pastors. There is no clearer description of the responsibility of a pastor regarding preaching than what is found in 1 Timothy 4. First sorry, 2nd Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. So this is the one command in this text given from Paul to Timothy for his work of pastoring and he says, preach the word. Now he's going to define what he means by that and how he wants that to be done. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready to preach whether it's convenient or inconvenient, whether you're tired or not tired, whether you're hungry or not hungry. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded and endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And the emphasis that I want to point uh make is from verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Those are the key words there. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with patience and teaching. So preaching requires reproof. It requires rebuking. It requires exhorting. And it requires teaching. This means that preaching, by definition, requires more than just, as Steve Lawson said many times in class, statement of fact, 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 the end. That's not preaching. It's more than just stating facts. It's, It's different from teaching. It's more than giving a lecture. So there's one essential word that must be true for preaching to be preaching, and it's this word authority. Authority. Preaching must be done with authority, or else it's not preaching. This is why a 12-minute homily from a local mainline Protestant liberal church that is filled with obscure literary references, movie quotes, and jokes is utterly unsatisfying to the Christian ear. There's no authority in it. Or, if there is authority in it, and there is conviction baked into the words, that conviction that's baked into the structure of the homily is pretty radically left-wing. For example, 15 reasons why you have to become a vegan in order to stop climate change. In that type of scenario, there is an attempt at authority, there is an attempt at conviction, there is an attempt at rebuking, reproving, and exhorting, and a call to action, but it's not a biblical one. So the essential element of authority in preaching is also why I'm arguing today that it is not fitting, it is not suitable, it is not appropriate for godly women. I am not denying a woman's ability to physically prepare a sermon or to deliver a sermon. I'm not saying a woman cannot do that. Of course, she could do it. She has a mind, she has a mouth, she has lungs, she has presumably two legs. She can stand up and deliver a message. but I am denying the appropriateness of such an action because it contradicts God's creation order. I'm here today to argue further that preaching is not biblical preaching unless it involves reproof, rebuking, exhortation, and teaching. Reproof, rebukes, exhortation, and teaching. There's something about God's created order that's part of the very ontology, the essence of womanhood that makes it unbecoming for her as a godly woman to be doing these things. So I will phrase it in terms of a question instead of a statement. Can a woman do all of these things, reproof, rebuke, and exhortation, without sounding like Hillary Clinton? <laughs> is that possible? I don't think it is. If that's not vivid enough, then go on YouTube later on and listen to her Certainly a woman preacher, a lady preacher could tell jokes and she could explain historical facts or linguistic connections. But to reprove, rebuke, or exhort without adopting that persona, you know, the Hillary Clinton persona, how is that going to work? I have never seen such a thing. How is it going to work without subverting God's design creation order? It's not a good look. It is not ladylike. And if it is ladylike, then it's not preaching. Therefore, a lady preacher is a contradiction in terms. If she is a lady preacher and is truly preaching, you know, bringing the hellfire and brimstone or the conviction of your sin or the reproving, rebuking, and exhorting and all that stuff... How is she going to do that while maintaining her composure as a lady? You can be a lady or be a preacher, but you can't be a lady preacher. To put it more succinctly, preaching is not ladylike. And preaching that is ladylike isn't preaching. Even if it's done by a man. I'm not sure y'all got that. Omar got that. Preaching that is ladylike isn't preaching, even if it's done by a male. So what happens? What happens when a woman seeks to reprove, rebuke, and exhort? Practically speaking, in 2023, people call her a Karen, and they pull out their phones, and they take videos, and they post them online. And then we've all seen them. And we all cringe. And we're just like, oh, that's that's the most unpleasant situation there and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It's a lot like the quarrelsome woman that is described extensively in the book of Proverbs. By the way, ladies, you need to read the book of Proverbs and see all the positive and negative examples of womanhood in there. There's a lot. There's a lot there about being a lady. For example, lady wisdom The personification of wisdom in the book of Proverbs is described as a lady. She, her, her voice cries out in the streets. Wisdom is crying. Starts in chapter one. In contrast to Lady Wisdom, there's the immoral woman, the strange woman, who enters the picture in chapter five, six, and seven, running for three chapters. Then Lady Wisdom appears again in chapter 8. Throughout the Proverbs, you see gracious, wise, and honorable women who build up their homes. They bring pride and joy to their husbands. This is described in chapters 11, verse 16, chapter 12, verse 4, chapter 14, verse 1. So a gracious, wise, and honorable woman. But then there's the contentious or quarrelsome wife. She appears at least five times as a sober warning. Chapter 19, verse 13, 21, 9, and 19, uh, 25, and chapter 27. And then the book of Proverbs concludes with this virtuous woman from Proverbs 31 that says, her price is more precious. Her value is far above rubies or gemstones. The Bible does not have a negative view categorically of women but has an honest look at women. An honorable, godly woman is priceless in her value. An immoral woman or a contentious woman is a curse on her home. Women have virtually limitless influence around, uh, over those around them based on the way that they use their words, the way they use their attitudes, and the way they use their actions. Uh, Regarding today's passage and the topic at hand of lady preachers, I'm certainly not saying that a woman can't ever do anything or say anything and can't influence anyone in any way, especially not men. No, that's not what I'm saying. I've never implied that at any point in my life, and I don't even joke about that. And I would challenge you that there is no such thing as a secret recording of Andy anywhere saying something like that. It's just not part of my speech. I despise the idea that women can't learn theology or shouldn't be trusted to read a theology book or shouldn't be trusted to read a book at all simply because they're women. Now, of course, of course there are women who have zero or negative discernment, but there's also lots of men that way too. But if we're going to press the matter further, I hate the idea that a man cannot get advice or insight from a woman without feeling like his masculinity is being threatened. I have personally asked for input from women many times in countless situations throughout my life and ministry and will continue to do so. For example, was I too harsh? Did that make sense? Can I wear this tie with this outfit? Now, yes, obviously my request for feedback is selective the same way I am selective about which men I ask for feedback. And you know why? Because not all men are wise. So I seek feedback from people that I know and I trust and have a demonstrated pattern of wisdom and sound judgment and I just don't go around asking every single person. Those days are over. That Andy is gone. He left in 2020. Around August of 2020. <laughs> the 13th, if we want to be precise. Oh, you have some feedback you'd like to give? Okay, well we'll, we'll please give it to me. No. <laughs> Thank you for that. We'll take it into consideration. And you hit delete. Um So, regarding women giving advice, making a suggestion, or asking a thoughtful question, that is not the same thing as preaching. So, women giving advice, making a suggestion, or raising a thoughtful question, all of those things are ways that a woman can can wield influence. But that's not the same thing as preaching, and if that doesn't make sense to you, you haven't heard a whole lot of preaching. So, to summarize the point, lady preachers are a contradiction in terms. Now, let's move on to verse 36 to 40. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it to you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. And do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. So our fourth and final point from verse 36 and following is that the attitude matters as well as actions. Attitudes matter as well as actions. The Corinthians were being very arrogant. The Corinthians were acting in an arrogant way. Do you remember the super apostles from our earlier discussions? The people who think they know everything and they're coming in to turn the church away from Paul's teaching and make the church follow after them. Well, this attitude is reappearing in Paul's response to it in chapter 14. Do you remember the Corinthian boasting? The shocking things they were boasting about from chapter 5? you remember the division in the church? There is no division where there's not pride. So the Corinthians are acting in an arrogant way. And so Paul is coming after them about their attitude in these verses. Verse 36. Did the word of God come originally from you? Why is he asking that? Because these people are acting like the Bible came from them. And they don't need to listen to him. Did the word of God come from you? And then what they're also doing, verse 36, or was it to you only that it reached? They're acting like they're the only Christians in the whole world. So they have this attitude of arrogance and acting like their word is more authoritative than Paul and they're the only Christians on the planet. They're the only ones who matter. They have a me-sized kingdom of God. And Paul's calling them out for it. And he's doing it kind of aggressively. He's aggressively attacking their bad attitude, which can be difficult for people who are used to thinking very simplistically. Where they're like, oh, well, the Bible says to be kind, so we can't ever rebuke unkindness in a strong way. We all just have to be like limp-wristed people with the backbone of cooked spaghetti. No, Paul is calling them out in a very strong way saying, did the word of God come originally from you or was it to you only that it reached? This is dripping with sarcasm. Then verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So he's trying to basically like shove them backwards to get them off of their aggressive attitude against him to catch them by surprise and to say, actually, you need to recognize my authority as the apostle from the Lord who is writing the word of God and these letters that I've written come with authority, the authority of God and you guys need to get this straight. Because you're acting like you're the only Christians. You're acting like the word of God came to you and you're the inspiration of scripture and you need to knock it off. Paul is writing to knock them down a notch or two. Verse 37 has a pretty clear undertone of rebuke. And then verse 38, in my opinion, is scathing. Especially if you read it in the New King James. Verse 38 says, If anyone is ignorant, let him be Ignorant. ESV says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Takes a minute to kind of get that. Takes a moment to wrap your head around what he's saying. He's saying, if you don't recognize this, if you don't acknowledge what I'm writing to you right now, then you are not recognized. Please, put your mind in the first century. Put your mind in the room of the Corinthians. This letter has come from the Apostle Paul to correct all these problems that are in your church. And Paul is calling out the leaders of your church, these super apostles. And he's saying, guys, actually, you need to listen to me because the word I'm writing to you is what we call the Bible, it's the word of God. It's authoritative over your super spiritual fake leaders. And if you don't acknowledge that, then it's because you're a fraud. In other words, someone who doesn't recognize Paul's authority coming from God is not someone who is to be recognized or acknowledged. Rather, you should ignore them. So imagine you're in a room, in a church, in a setting like this, and the preacher stands up and he opens, he or she opens up the Bible and says, okay, I know Paul says this, but first off, Paul didn't actually write this, and Paul was wrong. Where would this ever happen? Well, in any church in New York City that has a rainbow flag on the front, that is happening, I promise you. And in half of the ones that don't have the rainbow flag on the front, it's also happening. Comes through what we call critical scholarship. Where in the seminaries, 99% of them are theologically liberal. They teach that Paul didn't write the books that Paul claims to have written. It didn't come from Paul. This is one of the very things that Paul is addressing in these verses. Verses that Paul is writing scripture and it comes with the authority of God and if someone denies it, then you're not supposed to recognize them but you should actually turn around and walk out of the door and ignore them and never go back and hear that preacher ever again. But it's more than just that you need to ignore them, which you should. It's not that you should, just that you should Not acknowledge them. The issue is much more than that. And the issue is that God does not recognize them. God doesn't recognize that type of preacher. God looks at them and says, I don't know you. It's not that he's ignorant of them. It's that he doesn't have a relationship with them. Because that's what the word no means in most of these contexts in the Bible. For example, 2 Timothy 2.19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. And so, I don't think that any of you are this way, but if someone happens to watch this online who embraces the line that Paul is a chauvinist, I would tell you to put this whole paragraph, this whole point in your Paul is a Chauvinist pipe and smoke it. Even your own critical scholarship acknowledges that this text is authentic, that this paragraph exists in all the ancient manuscripts, it's original. And so, the lady preacher is a contradiction in terms. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for speaking, for not leaving us without a witness to your will, your word, your instruction for the churches. I pray that you would help us that we would be mindful of our attitudes as well, that we would not approach your word with arrogance, that we would not approach your word with an attitude that Paul was wrong and that he just needs to listen listen to us instead or hear about the modern way of thinking. Lord, I pray that you would continue to shape and fashion us into your likeness, that we would be a people who are humbly submitting to your authority and the authority of your word. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen.